Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Mark Calder, and today we'll be talking to the former British diplomat Gerard Russell about his new book, Heirs to Forgotten Kingdoms, Journeys into the Disappearing Religions of the Middle East. Gerard Russell, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. Um, Gerard Russell, could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I was a British diplomat for 14 years, uh, working almost entirely in the Middle East. I uh, joined in 1995, straight from university, and you're given a choice of what language to learn. And I took it pretty seriously. I thought through uh, Japanese, Mandarin, Swahili, there were a whole lot of uh, options on the list. And each one of them kind of commits you to a different sort of life. Mm. I mean, because if you learn Mandarin, you're very likely to live in Beijing for eight or 12 years. Uh, And... So it's a momentous choice, and, and I thought about it very, very hard. I had gone to Syria and Morocco when I was an undergraduate and was so attracted to those countries that I uh, chose Arabic, and I um, haven't looked back. It's been a, a tough experience in certain ways. Um, I did uh, uh, a year in Cairo learning the language. I did three years in Jerusalem as uh uh, consul political, which means really, in essence, talking to Palestinian political factions. Mm. I did two years as a spokesman on Arab television, and then I served later on in uh, Baghdad and Jeddah and Kabul. So it, it's been an eventful uh, time. I decided in the end that it probably wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, and that I would try and tackle the issues of the Middle East and, and the issues of misunderstanding that I think there are between um, West and East, if you like, through a different kind of means. And that was by writing the book that I did write, uh, which took me several years. Uh, beginning at Harvard, I, I was very grateful to the Kennedy School for giving me a couple of years to to work there. Uh, and then I carried on afterwards when in London. Well, where did the idea to write the book come from? Well, I had, in all of these countries, been intrigued by these sort of liminal communities that sat very much... Uh, culturally within the Arab context, but which were um, religiously Mm non-Muslim. And they intrigued me for all kinds of reasons. One is that I I came to the region with a real interest in history, a pre-existing interest I had done, um, Latin and Greek and history and philosophy at university. And uh, strangely enough, of course, the book didn't really need Latin or Greek, but it did Mm -hmm. use history and philosophy. So I was able to to use what I had done at university. somewhat to my own surprise. Mm. The, uh, but the history aspect, I mean, when you look at these communities and you just, first of all, I was intrigued by them. I mean, in Cairo, encountering the Copts, still more were actually being surprised to encounter Samaritans in, in the West Bank mm. and later on in Iraq, discovering a, a, not just the Yazidis, but also the Mandaeans with these two rather mysterious and in, somewhat ancient communities. Um, just to, to work out where they came from, what was their origin, 
what they believed and you know understand them better was was an, a, so fascinating a subject that I thought yes I could spend four years thinking about that. Mm. Well, it's very interesting that you you raise the different groups because the books structured chapter by chapter, focusing um, in on one uh, people group at a time. But I, I guess that raises the question of uh, who these groups are, really, because even even the title and and subtitle um, kind of raise an interesting relationship between religion on the one hand and mm. ancient kingdoms on the other. I mean, we're not talking here simply about theological differences, are we? No, in fact, theology is not important for, for really to to most of these groups. Um, it, it many of them are it, talking. If you're talking about the sort of general community of, of adherents, then they're not asked to have particular beliefs. On the whole, there are traditions, and there is uh, a loyalty, and there's a membership of the community, but there isn't necessarily a much of a set of beliefs. And indeed, many of the beliefs or the teachings of the religion are actually secret. Mm. Therefore, they are only disclosed to a minority of the followers. And uh, that makes them utterly different, of course, from the model that we are familiar with in the West. Um, but it is, you know, it is, it is a, a model that would have been much more familiar to people of ancient times, more than, you know, pre-Christian times. Mm. And in some cases, what's happened here is that these ancient civilizations, uh, Babylonian culture, uh, um, to some extent Egyptian culture, and certainly pre, um, pre-exilic Jewish culture, have survived aspects of those very ancient civilizations, have mm. survived, because they've been kept alive by uh, what's become a religious community. Um, and by that I mean that they are communities which rejected Christianity and Islam on the whole, in some cases adopted them, but with uh, significant deviations from the orthodoxy. Mm. And so they kept alive these traditions, very often living in very isolated communities. And so when when we go there and we encounter them, we do sometimes come across, and I don't want to exaggerate it, we do come across sometimes uh, traditions and customs that have been preserved intact for more than 2,000 years. Mm. That I found staggering. Hmm. It's actually very interesting as you read through the book to note how certain stories or myths or characters kind of circulate between the different groups, um, although often with, with quite different relationships um, to them from group to group. So, for example, with the Mandaeans um, having an annual mourning ritual to weep for the destruction of Pharaoh's army at the hand of the Israelites' God, um, several examples similar to that. Did, did you find that people... Um, acknowledged that there were these shared shared roots between between the different groups. Yeah, and they're often very intrigued by it and have their own myths and their own explanations for it. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, frankly, who knows what the origins of some of these customs are. It's quite difficult to work out the history of these religions in any depth. They weren't much recorded. They were very secretive, very isolated. In some cases, had a very few people who could read and write. So you don't tend to have a conventional history. Mm. And it can be hard to piece together what, where things come from, what the reason for them is. But there's definitely uh, certain patterns, certain similarities that they have. Um, you know, the Mandaeans have adopted a lot of things, uh, are very conscious of Judaism, are very conscious of the Jewish scriptures. Where that comes from, we don't know. Some people say that they were Jews. 
who had adopted a new religion, who changed their religion, but kept some of their memory of, of what they'd had before. Mm. Others would say, no, they were Mesopotamians, but there were lots of Jews in Mesopotamia, and so they were familiar with the Jews from those encounters. No one really knows. Um, I tend to the second view because I just think they're so radically different from traditional Judaism. And, and sympathizing with Pharaoh's army is just one example of how they've actually taken the opposite side. Um, at the same time, that, that morning, which they, they celebrate at or, or mark on the day of Ashura, they're also then echoing a Muslim practice of mm-hmm. grieving. And if we look back in history, we'll see that similar practices of grieving were familiar to pre-Christian, pre-Muslim groups in Mesopotamia that they wept for Tammuz, for example, they wept for, uh, there was more than one different kind of custom of mourning. Um, and it may well be that it's an inheritance from, from those times. It's fascinating. And coming to the present a little bit um, now, in chapter two, you, you focus on the Yazidis who've been in the news um, quite a lot of late uh, and might therefore be a little bit more well-known to listeners than, say, the Mandaeans. But um, this community sh- suffered uh, a huge trauma and upheaval and some would indeed say genocide recently. Um, and in fact, you recount your own journey at one point to Mosul as an election observer, a town which is um, today controlled by IS um, and, and in that hugely contested kind of area in the north of Iraq. To, to what extent do you feel that the book has kind of captured a world that's already been lost? Um, well, yes, uh, I, I think what's very sad about the book is that it memorializes faiths and cultures which are on the verge of disappearing for various reasons. Hmm. Uh, the physical extermination of the Yazidis is, is one. Hmm. Hello, Mark. Hello. Yes. The, the, the line isn't great. I'm hoping, hoping that's just a temporary blip, but can you, yes, hear, I'm not can, sure what the, can you hear me? Okay. Hello, can you hear me? I can. It, it sometimes um, sort of, yeah, I can hear you actually, Mark. I can hear what you say. Sometimes it comes through in, in different timings. Okay. I think we caught, caught your response to, to, um, to that question. So hopefully they'll be able to um, edit out the, uh, the, the blips there. Um, uh, so where to pick that up? I'll maybe, I'll maybe, um, uh, yeah, I'll maybe ask that question again, which just might make it a little bit cleaner, hope, hoping that we don't lose the, the signal again. Um, so to what extent do you think that this book captures a world that's already, already been lost? It's still there. I mean, you have 10 million people in the Middle East uh, uh, keeping these other religions, uh, mm. non-Muslim religions. Um, it is disappearing. It's disappearing because of globalization, emigration. It's disappearing because of persecution. Uh, and therefore, that's why I wanted to capture it in the book. It's a little bit like uh, when Leonard Woolley, the excavator of Ur, is an amazing uh, thing to discover, 3,000, 4,000 years old, uh, in the desert when he was excavating. A thing of immense beauty, but also great fragility. And when he uh, saw it. He only had a glimpse of it before the rain came and dissolved it before his eyes. Wow. In some ways, when I looked at these faiths, I thought this is the very last chance to see what this their life has been like in its homeland, in their original conditions, mm. because they will continue to exist, but they'll be existing in Sweden and Australia and America. Mm. 
the last chapter of the book does talk about that. I guess that the question is whether your epilogue is called Detroit, which I think is is very suggestive mm-hmm. of that sense that the the, the future is um, is is elsewhere. I mean, I mean, is Detroit the only epilogue in your view, or is there is there anything now that can be done to secure the future of minorities in their homelands? Well, there is, and I think it's very important not just for the sake of those minorities, but for the Muslims who make up the majority of the people of the Middle East, that this is their heritage too, which is being destroyed. And for their sake, I think it's very important to reform the education system, to spread awareness uh, and to spread uh, the desire for tolerance and the desire to conserve, to some extent at least, the traditional diversity of the Middle East. Um, I don't mean you can freeze a, a society in aspect. I don't mean you want to keep these religions alive just because they're historic. I think it's terrifically important that there's a memory of the diversity of faith which existed in the Middle East under Islamic rule as well as under other religions and which helped it to prosper. And that's a message which I, I hope that they would ad- adopt and accept that it's persecution and the desire for the hegemony of one sole religion has never been for the benefit of the region. Mm. Mm. It's a it's a very vivid book, and and sometimes it's it's actually quite funny. But as you as you, as you you put point out yourself, it's it is sad, and and loss is central to it. I also noted that your dedication at the start of the book um, actually mentions two colleagues who lost their lives in the region. Um, is, is this book a, a response to your own experience of, of loss as well? And, and you mentioned it's a difficult region in which to work. Um, I mean, to what extent does your own personal experience of, of the region and of, of loss frame the book as a whole? I, um, I hope it is a, a joyful book. It remembers things that have survived amazingly, you know, to our to surprise. Mm. How much has survived? How much there still is? But certainly, um, uh, there's there's the, the personal stories, and I, I tried to frame the book around individual stories. Mm. Are ones of of loss, sometimes of hope as well. Uh, Nadia, who is the Mandayan, who whose chapter begins the book, is someone who's had to emigrate from Iraq, and that's very very sad. Her story is is a tragic one. But at the same time, of course, you know, she has a happy life here and we have to try and sort of balance those two things. I am very glad you mentioned the two colleagues, uh, Vadim and Linda, who, um, you know, were in Afghanistan, actually, and were terrific people. They lived there for many years, very committed to the country, very much uh, living with the people. And um, in the end, they, they did not uh, they did not survive. Uh, and that was a, a very tragic thing. Uh, um, and I wanted to remember them because I'd had, they'd come with me on a couple of these trips that I, uh, I, I, I sort of influenced the book and formed the book. Hmm. Did you find in encountering such a diversity of, um, of groups and traditions and stories and myths and practices, um, did you find you developed a particular affinity with any, any one of them? I mean, clearly, your respect for all of them comes through very strongly, but sometimes I guess the imagination could be especially captured by one or other um, group or story or practice. Was there anything that you, you kind of reflect on as here yeah, that they they really captured my imagination? 
Well, yeah. I mean, of course, I, I mean, I am a Christian, and so I, I worshipped with Copts. But actually, in terms of uh, what really intrigued me, I guess <laughs> the Mandayan uh, demonology I thought was fantastic. They have, you know, Krun, the flesh monster, because they have a kind of view, Manichaean view of, uh, of flesh as being a bottom, basically, evil. Um, and so in their version of hell, there is this great embodiment of flesh. Uh, who sounds a bit like Jabba the Hutt. Uh, and then there's Dina Nucht, who's half man and half book, and who sits by the waters reading himself. Uh, and I, I love those, I have to say. The Yazidis, I thought, were uh, wonderful uh, for other reasons, because they just have these extraordinary, you know, very, very interesting belief in, in Lucifer, a Lucifer that has repented and being restored to favor as the Lord of this world and who can be revered in the form of a peacock. Mm. And this is, you know, both quite profound in a way, the idea of the devil repenting, mm. but also um, quite extraordinary and startling and different. And then finally, as somebody who studied Greek philosophy, it was really intriguing to me to find the Druze in Lebanon and that they had kept it alive. You know, Pythagoras and Plato and Aristotle are for them prophetic figures, uh, perhaps even divine. Uh, because they are incarnations of the spirits that have guided humankind onwards to greater and greater revelations over the centuries. And so you do find a great deal of philosophy in the Druze faith and a great deal of interest in the Greek philosophy. So that was wonderful. It's not often you, you discover that anywhere mm. in the world, let alone in the Lebanese mountains. Sure. You mentioned your own um, your own faith um, as well, and, and I guess you downplay that in in the book because it's very much a book about about these people but i'd be interested to hear how um maybe your own faith responded or interacted uh, uh with these these groups did it affect the way you were recognized the, the did it affect the kind of conversations you had i think in the middle east a christian is a minority and therefore if one's uh, had enough experience of that then you have some idea of what of what they're like of what it's like to be one Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that helps, certainly. The big difference, I think, is between being a majority people without the need to really think about your identity very much and being a minority. The minorities do think about things like identity and who they are in a much more, I think, in a much more profound and everyday kind of way. Um, second, actually, I don't think the religious beliefs did influence the way they interacted with me so much. I think it was more about where I came from uh, being British was good with the Druze because they've had a good experience with the British in them about, okay, 120 years ago, but they remember it quite well. Um, the Alawites were much more hostile because right now there is, you know, when I was going to visit them, uh, Britain was calling for the uh, downfall of Bashar al-Assad, who sure. for them is a, is a sort of heroic figure. So uh, they were not host- they were not friendly. Um, but um, so it was politics more than religion. That, that really determined how they reacted, I think. Um, and, you know, an openness to understand people's views and not ridicule them. Um, unfortunately, they get a lot of ridicule and hostility in the Middle East. Uh, and I think it was refreshing for them to encounter someone who, who was prepared to sort of understand their views without deriding them. Mm. It's very interesting you mentioned the Druze, actually, because they seemed to typify this very intriguing relationship between, uh, I suppose, ancient origins, and in their case, very secretive origins, and then a very um, uh, 
direct engagement in the messy political realities of of, of the day. Um, do you think there was a a pattern between certainly in terms of how how the different groups um, are surviving? Um, are those who are engaging more directly in politics? Do they have any advantages over those who are maybe uh, retreating from politics, or or is everyone in the same boat really? If they're a minority, I think um, good leadership is crucial, and the Druze are well led. They're quite unified. Um, they've uh, they're quite uh, sophisticated, and without you know wishing to kind of jump to generalizations, I think the Azidis themselves would say that they lack that unity and um, although they've they've in the last generation they've got a lot of very educated people they don't have, they're not frankly they're not middle class um, the Druze the Mandaeans the Copts all are generally middle class they've had about 50 to 100 years of increasing prosperity and so they've anchored themselves in the society more effectively the Yazidis have remained very remote and quite isolated and generally very poor so they are much more defenseless um, and politically and even uh, militarily uh, are more vulnerable. Whereas if you look at the Druze, they've really anchored themselves very effectively. Um, they're quite well off uh, and that has frankly helped them to make themselves more respectable and defend themselves. So there is a tremendous difference in in. That, that is down, I think, largely to social and political factors. Um, theology helps too. I mean, the Druze sort of on the edges of Islam. The Yazidis are, have wandered way beyond it. Um, and so they are easy targets for religious fanatics. Mm. Is, is, you mentioned that they're, they're perceived by some as, as devil worshippers. Is that something mm. that, that is um, prominently promoted by their, their opponents in, in yes. the region? Right. It's interesting. Now you deal with absolutely the... yes, yes. The uh... sorry, carry on. No, no. I mean, it, it's 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 one of the uh, primary allegations made against them. Hmm. I was going to turn to the the um, the Samaritans now, who are an intriguing um, community living near the Palestinian city of Nablus. Um, I, I don't know how how many uh, live there just now. Well, in that community, about 400, um, maybe a little more. And then there's another community in the outskirts of Tel Aviv, which has got about 300 to 400 people. Mm. And at one point you reflect upon um, the community's resilience as a, as a kind of product of um, both its its rigid fidelity to tradition and rules, but then this kind of adaptability that margins. You, you, I remember a story with a friend of yours um, called Benny, who's trying to kind of negotiate his way between this sense of absolute fidelity to tradition and, well, we might have to adapt, um, for example, uh, marriage rules and so on. And to what extent do you think that, that this kind of tightrope between fidelity to tradition and adaptability is going to be key to other groups' survival in the region, or perhaps more likely in the diaspora? Yeah, in the diaspora, I think it's absolutely crucial for them because, you know, a lot of these communities, it has to be said, are tremendously conservative. So they're more conservative than, than Muslims, on the whole. Mm. Uh, and in particular, they are very, very conservative about marriage. And what that means, effectively, is restricting the freedom of women to marry whom they choose. I mean, it, it would, in theory, affect men as well, but to the lesser, lesser degree. And so for somebody like Nadia, whose story is in the book, 
who chooses to marry out of the religion and is therefore officially, in religious terms, excommunicated, as it were, um, it's a tremendous challenge because she'd like to stay faithful to her religion, but, um, you know, I mean, her community, actually, she's, she's not really a believer. But, I mean, uh, what do you do in that situation? Um, they will not retain membership, I think, unless they adapt. Uh, and yet it's a tremendous challenge. What they see is the risk that they will, um, they will uh, lose uh, their identity, that they'll assimilate into the wider community. That's tough. Actually, in the Middle East, the choices are starker um, because um, the society around you will not accept uh, uh, intermarriage in the same way. Um, and because this is, Islam is, is so uncompromising, it actually means that these communities survive, uh, that, they, uh, that, 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 that intermarriage is, is less of a challenge. But in a, in a more tolerant society, oddly enough, it, it, it could be more of a challenge. Um, so it's not a challenge in the Middle East because it's it's not an option, whereas in, yeah. in the diaspora it is to some extent. Fascinating. That's right. And so they need to learn, in a sense, to teach their people more about their faith. Uh, and they need to learn how to deal with the issue of mixed marriages. Hmm. Now, the Copts are the only um, Christian church to get a chapter in the book, as it were, although you do mention Syriac, Chaldean, Assyrian Christians as well. Um, I guess the big difference with the Copts and some of the other groups is that nobody's really talking about the Copts um, disappearing in Egypt. Mm. I suppose that's also true of the, of the Druze as well. But, I mean, as a former diplomat in particular, how do you view the tightrope that Coptic Christians continue to walk between, um, on the one hand, being identified very strongly with the state, uh, which can cause problems, or losing its protection from the state, which obviously causes other problems? Yes, it's... it's uh... All of these groups have tremendous political challenges. Do you show loyalty to the state? Uh, uh, but you can then be implicated. Mm. If there is a change of regime, uh, you may be associated with the old regime. Particularly a challenge for Copts because they're so numerous and therefore they are political players in a way that the other faiths are not and could be viewed as a threat by their opponents. And so what the Copts faced in 2011 and onwards was was a real dilemma because uh, do you side with the Mubarak regime or do you side with the uh, revolutionaries? Uh, and mostly the Coptic church chose to back the Mubarak regime um, and therefore came in for, uh, frankly, a lot of hostility from Islamists who had always been hostile to the Copts, but this gave them a particular reason and, and cause. So um, to me, it was an example because, of course, then the Islamist regime falls and another regime comes along. Whoever, whatever side you take, you would have been uh, in difficulties. Mm. Um, and that, I think, is why these minorities uh, have prospered best when the country has been relatively stable um, under whatever kind of government. And the most difficult times come when there is frequent change of government because it's just so easy then to tread the wrong side of a path. Um, and it's not that persecution of these religions is necessarily the norm, but it is the case that if you are vulnerable because you're not Muslim, because you're not mainstream, you are particularly uh, cautious because you are so easily victimised. Mm. That seems to raise interesting questions for Western states or concerned NGOs or individuals in terms of how they um, relate to their co-religionists, for example, in the region. Um, because presumably, if 
they're over-supported, as it were. It, it, it might be seen as divisive by um, by Muslim neighbours or neighbours of other minorities in particular. I mean, how, how do people on the outside deal, if you like, with some of these these dilemmas of, you know, um, do we do we help our own or or should we look to uh, yeah. to broader society? I mean, my view is uh, that you should not help uh, one group at the expense of others and that it's uh, misguided to uh, target assistance to just Christians, for example. Um, not only because the Christians are generally better off than specifically the Yazidis in Iraq, but also because it creates lasting resentments. Um, it would be much better, and I think the wise uh, Christian charities, for example, do this, to assist the community at large, at least to some extent, and you would have preference for your own co-religious, that's kind of inevitable, but you know, you've got to be offering something to the wider society. Uh, and, you know, the these religions are not separate nations. Uh, they, I know I kind of risk implying that they are with the, you know, forgotten kingdoms, but they are actually part of the people. Um, the kingdoms they've preserved are the kingdoms of the entire nation, as it was in the past. The Iraqis of today, whether Muslim or, or Mandayan, are, have Babylonian roots, and that expresses itself in other ways in their society as well. So uh, I certainly see them as an integral part of the societies from which they come, and I think efforts to help them must be put in that context as well. Mm. Now, we've spoken mostly about the the, uh, the Levant and Egypt so far, but Chapter 7 was especially interesting to me because I had never heard of um, Kalasha mm. and the Kalash people. I wonder if you could uh, just give us a little introduction to to that group and um, and why you ended up uh, devoting a chapter of of your book to them. Well, I wanted first off. I'd lived in Afghanistan for two years and really loved the place and wanted to have something related to it in the book, even if it was uh, geographically a little further east than than the other chapters. Um, and had been intrigued always by this story of, of the non-Muslim peoples of uh, what was once called Kafiristan, who uh, had um, lived in the mountains uh, of basically northeast Afghanistan and northwest Pakistan. But they'd lived there when it was essentially an independent kingdom. And they had fought off all invaders and all intruders for hundreds of years, probably from Alexander the Great's time onwards and therefore had retained their own religion, which essentially was one of uh, worshipping many gods, sacrificing of goats, dancing, winemaking, uh, and violence, I have to say, um, uh, until the 1880s, 1890s, uh, when British adventurers and explorers encountered them and recorded a little bit about them. We, we don't know too much uh, because it was an incomplete survey. But we, we know that they, at that time, they had uh, a, a basically a cult of killing, it has to be said. And therefore, um, frankly, that's what interested the British about them, I'm afraid to say. It was a desire to find fighters. Um, but they were too wayward and too indisciplined in the view of the British to be worth cultivating. And therefore, the British basically turned their backs and, and let um, the king of Afghanistan uh, invade them and, and uh, slaughter those who wouldn't convert. A tiny fraction of the people who'd once practiced that faith, that religion, or um, the word is perhaps inappropriate, but that culture, uh, survived. They survived in Pakistan and, uh, and uh, are still there. 
just a few thousand, living in very, very remote valleys. What's intriguing is that they live in valleys which are on the very edge of, you know, a few, a mile or two away from some of the most dangerous bits of Afghanistan, some of the places where no Western troops could go because the people there who were once so fanatically anti-Muslim and so fanatically violent in defense of their pagan religion are now pretty much as violent in defense of Islam and in defense of uh, autonomy uh, from every government. And so you have there a very strong uh, affiliation with Al-Qaeda. So weirdly, you have neighboring the most dangerous bit of Afghanistan. You have a pagan part of Pakistan. Uh, and I just found that so intriguing and so curious that I wanted to write about it. And the story of it is wonderful. And the British explorers and adventurers who'd been there left such an, it was so intriguing that a place which we can now get to was then so utterly remote, so much on the very bounds of what any, uh, any person whose writing is known to us had ever visited. Mm. Uh, and uh, yet uh, today we can sort of go and visit. And it, it, uh, it's uh, pretty remote, but it is possible to get there. It was, uh, it was wonderful to read, read about it. Um, and I suppose that really epitomized the detail of the book. I love the, uh, the almost ethnographic detail that you, you go into in, in some of these chapters. Um, bearing in mind the, the kind of experiences you've had in, in writing the book and also your diplomatic experience beforehand, are there things now that when you, uh, you know, read the media or, or, or see the way in which the region is reported that, that really grate with, with your experience and make you yeah, think this is terribly dangerous? All, all the time. Uh, I think our understanding of religion in the Western press and in the Western commentariat is extremely weak. Um, it annoys me when people talk about what's happening in the region as though uh, Islamic State has nothing to do with religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a total misunderstanding. Um, there is indeed, you know, a, a battle within Islam uh, for the soul of the religion. And it is about religion, and that's what Islamic State is, is all about, frankly. It is attempting to capture the narrative of what Islam is about. Um, obviously, it's equally irritating and very dangerous when people try to present Islam as though it's entirely to be seen through the prism of the extremists, because that's completely false. Or when people wish to kind of discredit the entire culture of a billion people uh, on the basis of, of, of the problems that it gives us. Uh, I think that's uh, very, very problematic. Um, it, you know, it's relatively rare to find people trying to, who are successfully treading that, the fine line where you, you, you don't try and, um, and, and, and can, you know, sweep it all under the carpet and say this isn't to be understood theologically at all. And those who, uh, on the other hand, you know, are anti-Muslim, uh, and to find people who, who manage to get between those two categories is relatively rare. I find that quite frustrating. Hmm. I think what really comes through in the book is is you present the Levant in particular as historically and really until very recently with some significant blips, a very cosmopolitan area and a, an area characterised, if you like, by its diversity. Um, and uh, And perhaps that's what, what we're we're forgetting when you refer to forgotten kingdoms, um, but there's a question in the um, I think it's in the introduction of the book that one of your uh, interlocutors poses, which is, what does it matter if we cease to exist? And it's a very discomforting kind of question um, to hear, particularly in the in the uh, words of of one of your 
interlocutors in the region. But uh, what's your response to that now? What what is being lost here? Yes, what's being lost is freedom of thought. The important role that these religions played in the Middle East historically was that they provided a culture in which you could think about issues of religion um, in a non-orthodox way. And whether that's among diverse Muslim groups like the Druze, the Ismailis, or among non-Muslim groups, uh, it actually provided a counterbalance to those who said, because we're a Muslim country, we must have Islamic law. Mm. And Islamic law means a whole set of things like orthodoxy and enforced orthodoxy and uh, you know, dogmatic repression of dissent uh, and clerical domination. So there's a whole host of things which come with it. And very often it has been the existence of these other religious groups that have meant that governments could say, no, we, we can't do that. We can't do that because actually uh, not all of us are Muslims. I think it's very sad. It's very sad for me when people talk about Islam in the West as though the entire of the Middle East were Muslim, as though the identity of the people there, their chosen identity, is to be expressed through religion when so many of them would, would, would not see it that way. It's more complex than that. Even if they're Muslims, they may see themselves as Arabs rather than Muslims, first of all. Uh, they may have a deep loyalty to their country, Lebanon or Egypt in particular, you know, have, have uh, a very strong sense of differentness and Iran. So um, I, I think that there's been a, a, an attempt by both Islamists and anti-Muslims, really, to construct a false uh, polarity, to say, here we have a, a battle or a dialogue, whichever you want to call it, between Islam and the West. Um, one has to be very wary of this because what you've got there is people who are attempting to capture their society, to say we own our society. We, as Muslim clerics or as Muslim thinkers, we, we own the Middle East. Uh, and I, I want to resist that. Um, so I think what happens when you lose these minorities, when they genuinely disappear, is that you risk you know, heading towards the, that vision becoming true. And I think as we do so, we head more and more towards this uh, clash of civilizations and so forth. One has to be aware that these civilizations are largely imagined. Mm. So in a sense, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy yes. because we talk as if it's the case. It might, in fact, become the case. Yes. Do you, there's been some talk recently of creating safe havens for for different groups uh, in the region, which is, a, is an idea with a slightly problematic history. I mean... Is that a viable way of, if you like, preserving um, the, the these minority groups in their homelands? Or is this really um, a, a way of, if you like, just surrendering the, the uh, if you like, the, the, the monoculture outside of those safe, safe havens? Yeah, I don't think it will do active harm, provided it isn't espoused by... Um, by people with a very clear agenda. Mm. You know, what, what has happened in the past is, you know, is actually been that people have alleged that, let's say, the cops in Egypt want to carve out their own state. Uh, that was used for ages as a, basically a libel against the cops and a, an excuse to go and beat them up. And uh, literally, I mean, and um, it's similarly, you know, it was the case that in, in Iraq, many of these religious groups wanted to carve out homelands for themselves. <laughs> I understand it, but I mean, it's 
what they often want, I'm afraid, is unsustainable. Mm. If it comes with simply at the behest of the West, then it's unsustainable. What you can have is safe havens that are sustained by the governments that are in the region, by the powers that genuinely exist there and will stay there in the future. Um, that could work. And they need cunningly to construct alliances so that they do have protection from their Muslim neighbors. It won't be good enough for it to come from us. I think it's important that we in the West care about this because I actually think governments in the region do, do note, they take note of what we care about. And if we show that we don't care, they won't bother to do it. But uh, if they can win points by protecting their own minorities, yes, on the whole, they'd quite like to do it. Uh, and they are the ones who have to be the guarantors of these religions' uh, future. I guess that brings us finally to Detroit again. Um, if this is certainly one of the places, the diaspora, where these traditions are to have a future, what are the implications for, if you like, our Western discourses of integration and multiculturalism and so on? Because I suppose one of the things you're expressing hope for in the book is that these traditions will persist. And to some mm. extent, that requires a, a hierarchy and a, a, a certain um, protection of these communities as communities. Um, and yet, obviously, there's a, a lot of political pressure to to receive people on the basis that they will integrate. Do you have any thoughts on on the question this poses, particularly in the context of the, the migrant situation, and to to Western governments and uh, West, Western um, society more generally? This is a really uh, difficult question. I the one simple thing that I could say is that I think it's very good for these religious communities which have existed basically as neighbours to each other for, for so long, and that's how they've survived, is because they're living in communities together, for them to have uh, the opportunity to locate together also when they move, so that instead of being scattered around the world, they can have a chance of, of sort of, you know, uh, of living together, um, and particularly for the Mandaians scattered around Australia and Sweden and, uh, you know, every country, very, very tough because very in rare cases do you have access to a priest. And so it would be much better if they could be in one place. It is, however, uh, not the way that the asylum system works. I don't think much of the asylum system as it stands. I think it's largely hypocritical uh, and doesn't really... Um, it's more about shrugging off the moral guilt that would come from sending people home mm. than it is about actually thinking hard about how to protect people. Um, and uh, so it doesn't, in my view, do very much. Um, I uh, I don't, however, have any clear answers, frankly, on how how to deal with it, because I think all of these diplomacy is very often about making uh, choosing the least worst option. Mm. Um, and whenever people claim to, you know, be gaining great successes or you know. If one white is one out of a black and day is one overnight, uh, I think it's probably going to be a lie because in reality, uh, human affairs at that scale have very little, very, very blurry morality and very, very difficult choices in which most options are not going to be great. And, um, of course, what one can passionately hope for is that the situation in the countries from which those people are coming, uh, which most of them did not originally want to leave, 
could be resolved. That is very clearly what one can hope for. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time and uh, it's been fascinating hearing um, your reflections on the situation more generally. Before you go, um, what are you working on now? Are you continuing to work uh, in the Middle East or what's next for you? Well, I work a lot with the Middle East. I would, I'm interested in finding another book to write and I'm thinking what it should be about. One thing that interests me a lot uh, is, is, is identity. Actually, it's a little bit what you were referring to. Uh, how do you balance uh, the different identities that a person has if they are particularly a minority, actually? But in general, um, where do we get our sense of self from, our sense of belonging from? And what uh, role does religion play in that? Of course, it troubles people to see Muslims in Britain heading off to join Islamic State. Um, but I think uh, there's a wider question of, of where, what it is that people feel can make them into a community. And, you know, and, and what is a community? A community of people who trust each other enough to, to live together and, and uh, build a state together. Um, I don't think there's enough that's been written to explain what it is that's at the heart of our belief that we can form a community together. Well, that sounds fascinating. And that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid. Um, Gerald Russell, thank you for being on the show today. Uh, and I wish you well with your next project. Goodbye. Thank you so much. <laughs>